Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 52. As of today, it has been exactly one year since this podcast launched last summer. We want to give a huge thanks to everyone that's listened to us this year. Uh, This has been a ton of fun putting together and chatting with a wide range of folks at NASA. And just so you all know, we do follow the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley and check out the podcast metrics to understand how many people listen and what conversations have done particularly well. So to that end, we would love to add more interactivity to the podcast interviews. We could add questions live on air or have questions sent to us in advance or even take requests on any particular topic or guest that you want to hear from. So go ahead, use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley on Twitter and let us know your thoughts. Similarly, no matter what podcast app or platform you used, uh, go ahead and leave us a review. Whether it's in iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or any other app, reviews really help podcasts get noticed by other people that might not know about it yet. Again, thanks so much for all the support and don't hesitate to let us know how we can improve things. This week, we're talking to Ulan Wong, a robotics researcher and computer scientist with the Intelligent Robotics Group here at NASA Ames. Ulan works on perception and physics-based vision for mobile robotics. Now, using special stereo camera systems, Ulan and his team, they build a sandbox filled with moon dirt as a simulated lunar environment uh, to understand how to navigate in the challenging lighting conditions at the moon's poles for future missions, looking at planetary and subterranean robotics. So, in fact, you can check out our AIMS Facebook page for a recent Facebook Live we just did at the Lunar Simulant Testbed Lab here at Ames. But now, here's Ulan Wong. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What brought you to Silicon Valley? How did you join NASA? Tell us your story. Well, uh, first off, uh, thanks for having me. Um, but uh, I came to NASA in 2015, so not too long ago. So you're Um, new. Yep. (laughs) I uh, was in one of these research scientist positions at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, awesome. I did my PhD there in uh, robotics uh, under Professor Red Whitaker. He's uh, kind of the uh, leading roboticist of today. He did all the uh, self-driving vehicles, and he won the Urban Challenge. And well, I always think of Pits- I always think of Pittsburgh as the land of sweet potato fries. <laughs> it's the one place they put uh, sweet potato fries on salads, on sandwiches. That, that's everything. true, and they have pierogies. They, yes. they like their pierogies. Growing up, did you study engineering and robotics when you were going to Carnegie Mellon? Um, growing up, I knew I wanted to be an engineer or a scientist. Okay, and uh, in high school. I had an internship at the local university mm-hmm. uh, up in Portland, Oregon. Nice. And we did robotics, and that captured my imagination, and I was hooked since then. Uh, I did my undergrad in uh, computer engineering at Carnegie Mellon, and I stayed there. <laughs> I, I knew all those people, and I stayed through the PhD, and uh, even for two years after the PhD in the research scientist role. So how did that end up leveraging into NASA? So during my PhD, I did a lot of robots for underground work, mining, cave exploration, things like that, tunnels, uh, some defense work. And uh, NASA at the time was very interested in exploring underground caves. And so out of that project, I 
met a lot of NASA people. I always was interested in space, and so one thing led to another, and eventually I applied here and got accepted and came all the way to uh, San Francisco. Oh, wow. And so this is relatively soon. It's been just a little bit over a year, I'm guessing? Or? Uh, yeah, about 20 months, actually. <laughs> nice. And so when you came over here, I'm guessing you're still working on robotics, or how did you get launched into things? Um, I knew a lot of the people uh, before mm-hmm. I came because, surprisingly, the robotics group here uh, has a lot of CMU alumni. Okay. So... Um, you know, I was very comfortable with those people. Some of my friends from grad school were already here uh, in the intelligent robotics group. So I uh, dove right into the work. Uh, they had a need for people who did computer vision and people who had experience with uh, perception in dark environments like okay. caves. And I did that, so <laughs> I fit right in and uh, got to work on day one. Excellent. Yeah, thinking of like Carnegie Mellon, I mean, for folks who are local, if you're on 101 and you see the big hangar from where NASA is, um, you know, there's a chunk of it that is NASA, then we have another chunk called the NASA Research Park, and Carnegie Mellon even has some space right, there, right. so it seems like perfect place for like partners. We have a satellite and- campus there, so a lot of people uh, work there and then go to Pittsburgh uh-huh. or do the switch around and uh, we're very familiar with the, so the a nice comfortable landing yeah. place over here right so when you came in obviously you're taking your expertise from working in dark conditions and caves so how how does that are you looking at like like sensors and ro- or, or the actual robots themselves or how does that play exactly in? um so my area of expertise particularly is perception for robots okay so that those are the sensors you can imagine the eyes absolutely of the robots we look at cameras and lasers radar thermal imagery um, most of that has to do with uh, optical phenomena like sensing of light uh, but uh, that provides a way for robots to navigate and interact with the environment and understand the environment. Is that fairly new? I mean, I think, you know, obviously humans, you have to be able to see. I mean, for the robot stuff, are, you just, are, are these sensors just getting more and more sophisticated? Or what are you playing with? Are you making these, like, more in tune or how? So in the robotics community, everybody used cameras. That was the only sensor that they knew how to use in the yeah. 70s and 80s. Okay, right. And that, that followed naturally. In the 90s, uh, some companies came up with these sensors called LIDAR, okay, uh, yeah, yeah. light detection and ranging. Okay. Um, and it basically shoots a light or, or laser pulse and measures the range. And it actually, uh, these devices give you 3D information uh, directly. And it's not like cameras where you just kind of see a picture or you have to set up two cameras to do some stereo thing. NASA is just getting to that stage now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the industry in the early 90s developed this technology. You can see it on all the cars that Google and Uber drives. I was going to say, yeah. like most self-driving yeah. cars have some sort of LiDAR on top. Exactly. No NASA robot uh, has used LiDAR. currently uses that yeah, oh, wow. that's flown. Um, it's a very low uh, TRL uh, technology. Mm-hmm. It's TRL? Uh, technical readiness level. It means they uh, haven't developed it to the point where they're comfortable flying it yet. Okay. Yeah, because I remember reading something I, I frequent on, there's a subreddit of r slash self-driving cars, <laughs> and they're always talking about um, you know like how expensive those LiDAR sensors were for so long, and it's only been fairly recently that that price has right. gone down right. and made some of this like realistic. 
Well, to be fair to NASA yeah. and, and space exploration, though, uh, that technology does not carry directly over to space environments like the hard vacuum of space, uh, the radiation, uh, the thermal and heat. All those things are difficult uh, for a sensor to perform well. So they have to develop the sensor to handle those environmental conditions before they can fly it. And that's been difficult, but it gets really cold. <laughs> there, are, there are several groups at NASA, uh, Goddard, uh, JPL. A lot of people are looking at lasers for robots right now. So we are too. Cool. So um, so when you're working on robotics, are, are you kind of looking at the environments and understanding those environments? And are you doing some sort of analog, I guess, for you know here on Earth for what people may expect on an asteroid or on Mars or anywhere? Yes, we try to recreate some aspects of the environment mm -hmm. here in a lab, or sometimes we can find them out in nature on Earth too, okay. uh, so that we can test things like instruments or sensors. So one of the analogs that we are working on now is an appearance analog for the poles of the moon that we're developing okay. in Ames. And the poles of the moon are a very interesting environment optically. Right, you can go there and it will look like nothing else in the solar system. So the sun comes in uh, when you're at the polar regions of the moon at a very oblique angle because mm -hmm. the moon rotates in the same plane as the solar system. Okay. So the sun comes in at a very low angle and there's no atmosphere to scatter the light. So mm -hmm. all your lighting is very direct from a point source and you get these very long black shadows and um, it's a very curious environment. You're unlikely to find it anywhere on Earth because Earth has atmosphere. And uh, what you get are dark shadows and very bright regions that are directly illuminated by the sun. So it's kind of the uh, Italian painters in the yeah. Baroque period call it uh, <laughs> chiaroscuro, right? Okay. Alternating light and dark. And it's very difficult to be able to perceive anything for a robot or even a human that's going to analyze these pictures because cameras don't have the sensitivity to be able to see the details that you need to detect a rock uh, or a crater. It just looks like a black spot, right? It's hard uh -huh. to tell if it's a shadow or there's actually... Uh, something black there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might <laughs> no. fall into something, right? And uh, we're building these analog environments here and lighting them like they would on the moon with uh, solar simulators. And in order to create these sorts of appearance conditions, and we take a lot of pictures and mm -hmm. use these sensors, and we are doing two things. One, we are working on algorithms so the robot can safeguard itself yeah. uh, in these environments. And two, we're collecting all this data so that we can train people to interpret it correctly and command the robot where to go. Okay. So as a bit of a callback on one of our earlier podcast episodes, we had Terry Fong over, and he was talking I'm, about like how he he's my boss. <laughs> <laughs> how nice. <Yeah. laughs> so uh, he, he was talking about how looking at environments and kind of doing a 3D mapping and even working with some VR stuff, but then kind of came down to like, the robot needs to understand that whole 3D environment. It's not just a camera or a picture. It needs to, in a 3D world, map it and understand where where its place is. And then that was kind of like that, that evolution over time of the technology and then realizing, oh, we don't need the VR stuff per se, but we just really need to know what these what the terrain is. Is that some of the stuff that you're looking at? Exactly. And uh, what he was talking about 
uh, is pretty well understood on Mars and on Earth. Uh, these are simpler, easier environments optically because mm -hmm. of atmosphere. And when you have atmosphere, light scatters, shadows aren't as harsh, right? You get oh, this sort yeah. of ambient light that you can see in the dark areas. And cameras will operate a robot fairly well in these conditions. The Mars rovers just use stereo vision, and they've wow. used it for 20 years, and they, they work perfectly fine. Uh, a lot of robots on Earth operate in the daylight well using stereo cameras. We don't know whether stereo cameras will work in the polar regions or actually on any airless body. NASA has never landed a rover and navigated in the polar regions of any airless body before. Oh, wow. So one of the missions that's in phase A right now, Resource Prospector, mm -hmm. uh, that I have the privilege uh, to, of working on, might be the first mission to land a robot and navigate in the polar regions of the moon. And in order to do that, we have to kind of figure out what these polar regions are going to look like on the surface. Nobody's ever been there. So we have to use a combination of you know, uh, physics yeah. we, we, to predict what it looks like and also some observations from orbit that we can kind of get an inkling of what these environments might be. So I mentioned the dark caves previously. We know from operating in those kind of conditions and bringing your own light yeah. where it's dark, uh, there are operational uh, and navigational considerations that we're you know, trying to get more of a grasp on. And so as you start you know, building these technologies, creating new sensors, trying to figure out how to do this, I mean, are there places on Earth that you test it, like in caves, or is it, for the most part, you have to do algorithms, use the supercomputer, or, or like test it in simulations? Or is it a mix of both, a little bit? You exactly described what we're doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So, uh, for, Knock for it out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> for a lot of missions, uh, you can find an analog naturally and, and test that. Right. The other option is to create an analog in a lab environment okay. if you can't find that. So we, we chose that route to create one. Uh, we make fake moon terrain nice. <laughs> <laughs> with fake lighting in a lab. Um, but the other part of that is you can only shovel so much dirt. Mm -hmm. right? um, we are also leveraging uh, physics-based rendering. Uh, okay. We're trying to re photorealistically recreate the illumination in these environments. And... Uh, this allows us to use a supercomputing to render a bunch of images uh, using models that we have decent confidence in. And this gets us a lot more information than we would taking pictures in a lab with three people, for example. So when you're talking about like the polar moon surface, this is another callback to an episode we did with Dan Andrews, um, was talking about some of the some of the work that he was doing over there, like how it's so such a unique environment because if you have a crater at those polar at the polar you know spot of, of the moon where the light is coming at such an angle at, you know long shadows but saying that like inside those craters some spots in there have like never seen light ever exactly and, and saying that like it could, like powder almost becomes silky and like really fine and so is that what you're kind of simulating in the labs yes uh so in my case we're simulating how they would look to the sensors oh wow uh, so that we can navigate around there but these are very interesting environments and nobody actually knows exactly what that powder is going to be like that powder 
could be rock hard, and I've heard other people argue that it's soft and fluffy, for example. Yeah. Uh, from from the point of view of cameras, it, that does, that part doesn't matter very much. Okay. But other things that matter include how bright the soil is. Uh, we, we call that regolith, actually. Yeah. Um, how reflective it is. And those have repercussions to optical sensors. Right? Yes, you, the robot doesn't actually it doesn't have to necessarily touch it, but it's got to see it yes. and understand yes. how that's going to. Yes, happen. and if it shows up as something like black ice, yeah, you know, uh, humans find it very difficult to drive in environments where there's black ice. And, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it's very cold there, and there might be moisture that's been frozen in. And we don't know how that behaves optically, so we've got to simulate some of these properties in order to figure out what our operations will be. So you talk a lot about, um, you know, the robots and the sensors. And sometimes that also, you know, as we get further and further away from Earth, there's a time delay that we always have to deal with. And then that ends up, you know, called the speed of light. Um, But then that often will pivot into looking at intelligent systems and ways that humans and robots can work together with like some smart software where the robot can actually handle quite a bit on its own, but then use human interaction to kind of help refine it. Does that play into some of the work you're doing? Yes, actually. Um, the moon is a lot closer to Earth closer than Mars. Than Mars. Yeah. Um, but the communication setup that we're using actually introduces, I've heard somewhere around a 30-second latency. Wow. Right. So we're uh, working with an operation right now where we think we will command the robot to drive about four meters and it will drive a four meter path and then stop. And along that path while it's driving, the human is not going to be babying the robot. Yeah. The robot will drive on its own and it will sense if the path goes through an obstacle that's unsafe or it's deviating because it's slipping and the robot will stop itself and inform the human operators. So there's some automated safeguarding, we call totally. it. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're but, dealing with but that But it delay. totally won't drive itself. The human will command in small steps where the robot is going to go. Uh, we intend to have human operators and scientists who will really look for where the best paths are mm-hmm. and where these interesting goal locations will be. Cool. So on the stuff that you're working on and as you're looking at these sensors and the technology and trying to perfect them or or just, you know, for future campaigns, missions, um, what do you see like five years from now? What are you seeing in the future of uh, where are you hoping that some of this work is going to lead to? Well, my first hope is eventually we will have robots that can operate in these polar conditions. Mm -hmm. And that's a first step to robots operating in caves on other planets, like on Mars. They recently found these holes on Mars that are sections of collapsed lava tubes. So one day a robot might go in there and into these total dark environments that have never seen light. And the work that we're doing here is going to lead to that. So uh, my hope is that in the future, uh, robots will go past daylight operations in atmospheric environments to really the toughest, most extreme uh, environments. And in order to do that, the robots need to be able to perceive better. And that's where the leap is needed. Wow, yeah, because if you think about all the rovers and the things that have been landed on Mars thus far, we're literally and figuratively just scratching the surface. Exactly. And there's a whole lot more on that planet to look at. Some theorize that underground is where all the life is going to be. 
wow. right? All the extremophiles. When you're underground, you don't have the massive temperature extremes. Mm -hmm. uh, that might be where liquid water has been holed up. Uh, so uh, underground is very interesting. And in the polar regions, in those permadark craters, that's where the water is. So we're going to those locations and they're all extreme. Yeah, and even looking at that, that throws in a whole host of other questions of when you're building a rover that can dig a little bit or go into caves, then you're thinking about the battery packs because like then you're in a cave, there's no solar ener energy to, you know, solar rays to like battery and power the rover. It exactly. just gets exponentially more and more difficult yeah. as you go down there. Well, e even in the permanently dark craters, there's yeah. no sunlight for battery. So a robot is going to need to uh, Either manage its own. Yes, exactly, or... exactly. Uh, manage its battery while it's in the dark regions, and then be able to come back. Because if you estimate how much power you have uh, wrong, then you're going to die in the dark regions and never <laughs> make it back to the sunlight. So obviously, a lot of the stuff that you're working on, you know, computer science into robotics. Um, but obviously, we're sending these robots and developing the software and these instruments for science because at the end of the day we're going there to see like what do we what can we learn that we don't learn how does that inter how does that interact with your work are, are you working a lot with like the scientists who actually have a hypothesis that they're trying to pull together and you're just helping them like pull together the instrumentation to make it happen or uh, a little of the above <laughs> all of the above <laughs> nice um the scientists uh do have an idea of where they want to sample for example they have uh, spectrometers uh, drills other sensors for resource pros prospector and they have ideas where they want to use these sensors and as a ro roboticist we've got to make sure the robot can get to these locations safely and uh, we've got to make sure that they get to multiple such locations so uh, all that ties in together, and we definitely work with the scientists. I know a lot of them, and they're my friends. <laughs> and so going forward, is there one big like game-changing technology that you guys are hoping to pull together or something well, for future missions? In my opinion, Resource Prospector itself is the game-changing yeah. technology. Uh, it's an incredibly low-cost mission. NASA's you know, not tried anything this courageous in a while. Uh, it's going to go to the polar regions of an airless body, which is a first, and it's going to drill, and it's going to mine water, right? Wow. That's, that's pretty game-changing, because if they do find water there, you know, imagine all the possibilities with fuel and, you know, moon bases, all that stuff. Yeah, excellent. So for folks who are looking for more information on the stuff that you're working on, be it robotics or resource prospector, guess they just go to nasa.gov? Exactly. Uh, you could also search for uh, the Intelligent Robotics Group at NASA awesome. Ames. Uh, resource prospectors you mentioned and uh, game-changing development which funded some of this work as well excellent so for folks who have questions for for you lon you know, we are on twitter at nasa ames and we're using the hashtag nasa silicon valley so thanks for coming on over awesome thanks for having me